0: Father, we are grateful for this evening and the opportunity to be here and to um, study your word and to have fellowship with the saints and just would ask that you would give us a clear mind as we study these things from your word and your son's name we pray. Amen. So I hope you guys did good on the uh, test last week. Uh, If not, uh, hopefully you'll do good on the test at the end of this class. Uh, So I gave you a new booklet. I try to go through every periodically and try to update things um, that Maybe uh, we've come across that might be uh, of a benefit. Uh, I tried to tighten up some things, particularly on some understanding of temptation and trials. Um, and so I thought about changing the introduction here. And for those who are listening online, you can go online to the church's website, and the outline is online um, under my name. But um, I started to t- wonder about changing this poem here but I kind of like Annie Johnson Flint because I think it gets to what the issue is with regard to the Christian life. And so notice what she said, said here. Um, Some of us stay at the cross. Some of us wait at the tomb, quickened and raised with Christ, yet lingering still in the gloom. Some of us bided the Passover feast with Pentecost all unknown. This is probably, that little statement she said here, it's probably 60% of the church. It's probably, maybe more. I'm probably being a little uh, low on the low side. Most people are not living as grace believers. They're just not. It's just what it is. <clears throat> the triumphs of grace in the heavenly place that our Lord has made our own. If Christ who had died had stopped at the cross, his work had been incomplete. If Christ who had, was buried had stayed in the tomb, he would have only known defeat. But the way of the cross never stops at the cross. Always oh, kind of funny, right? See all the people wearing crosses, right? I mean, even see unsaved people. You, know, you want to tell them, you know, that cross is really insignificant without a resurrection. <laughs> it doesn't really matter if you have a dead Savior, you see. But the way of the cross never stops at the cross, and the way of the tomb leads on to victorious grace in the heavenly place where the risen Lord has gone. And that's true. Boy, I wrestled, should I take this out? You know, you want to do something new, but I felt, nah, we're going to stay with Annie Johnson. She hits it out of the ballpark. (laughs) And so God expects believers to leave the cross. It's not about the cross without the resurrection. No resurrection, no salvation. And so it's interesting how the cross has been held up in the way that it has. Even with with unsaved people, they they seem to be enamored with it, and it's become a fixture. But it's the resurrection that is the focus. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, if it wasn't for the resurrection, we all might as well just go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. None of it matters. If Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, nothing else matters. (laughs) And so... He expects the believer, the whole purpose of the believer is that we're supposed to go on from the cross and to live in this resurrected life that we have. And as I said, most believers don't. Most of you believe, and I, well, you say, well, where do you, where's the problem? I think it starts at the pulpit. Yeah. I really do. I, I think that we do a poor job in the church of teaching people the purpose of what the church is. And so, if you notice, if you go into your average church, what they'll do is they'll get you in, and the average thing that they say is they get you in and get you busy. Well, that might work in a civic club, but it doesn't work in the church. You really don't need to be busy in the church. You need to be growing. 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 It's from growing that you will do what God wants you to do. But the focus should be on growing. Not doing, growing. And so that's what was happening with the the, uh, Hebrew believers. They they were still uh, in the same place as Courtney read. You saw the scripture. Like little babies. Have you ever been in a church where you have a bunch of babies? Have you ever been in a nursery with a bunch of babies? Now imagine a bunch of spiritual babies, like baby Huey. A bunch of spiritual baby Hueys. And I've been in churches like that, and let me tell you, it's no fun. Because the believers are not helping each other. They're so busy thinking about themselves and what's going on in their lives. And because they're thinking about themselves, their lives are just spinning out of control. And it's, it's just no fun to see it. And so the whole point of what we're supposed to be doing as believers is growing, growing, not uh, numerically, but spiritually. You see how that's been changed? If you ask the average church, what are we supposed to be doing? Numerical growth will be at the top of the list. What about spiritual growth? That really should be at the top of the list. Growing spiritually. If you were to measure the early churches by the standard that they have today, they would have all been failures. They would have all been failures. Why? They all met in homes. So they couldn't have been very big. So they would have been Failures. By the standard that is used to measure churches today, it's going off the rails. And it's not numerical growth, it's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. That's what the, the believers ought to be engaged in. And so um, we don't really care a whit about that. Evangelism has overtaken every other purpose in the church. It's evangelism, it's evangelism all the time, and and then if you look at what they say, even that doesn't line up with scripture, unfortunately. And so the believer is, we're incapable of accomplishing growth, the spiritual growth by ourselves. God has to do the work. You can't make yourself grow. Um, I remember when I was, well, you can physically. Did you know that? What used, you used to could, back when they had the big high heels? Yeah. <laughs> so I was a short fella, but when they came out with those big high heels, remember those? Yeah. You could grow. <laughs> you could put yourself uh, on the plane with some of the taller people. Uh, <laughs> the platform shoes, yeah. Um, yeah, those days, I was sad to see those go. They <laughs> <I> even had <laughs> platform tennis shoes, remember that? <laughs> And so you could grow yourself. But spiritually, you can't. You need help. God has to do the work. If God doesn't do the work in me, I'm not going to grow. <clears throat> and that's that's another problem. And so... Um, God has given the Holy Spirit that as we, as we talked about yesterday, as the believer is able to live in our position, this great position that we have. And remember we talked about in Second Corinthians what was happening is that the, the believers were being directed away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And so if you talk to a lot of your average believers about being in Christ, what would they say? I mean, it's become a generic term, but they don't think it really means anything. And so when you ask them, well, what are the benefits of being in Christ? They couldn't tell you. And yet you see that a lot of believers are suffering from not enjoying those benefits. And they don't understand why. It is the saddest thing to see. It is so sad. It is so, so sad. God has provided this great salvation. For believers to partake of and a lot of believers I'm sure have uh, lived and died and have not known the difference and have just trudged their way through life struggling through all of these different issues not ever learning to rely on the power that God has provided it is so sad it is really sad <clears throat> and so uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that he, he provides the power for you and I to be able to operate in this life as we are able to just trust him the provisions that God has given. You know what he wants? It's like this. I like the way Dr. Schaefer said it once. You <clears throat> got the little kid. The kid comes up to you. They want to help you. But you know the kid is not helping you. They're just in the way. So you say to the kid, hey, kid, here, take this here, take this little plastic hammer, and I'm going to give you a nail, and you can help me right over here. Nail on this. (laughs) Right? And the kid's over there nailing on the hammer, and he's just nailing away. And he said, whoa, we accomplished a lot, didn't we? Sure we did. (laughs) But the kid's mind was out of the way, focused on something else, and you were able to get accomplished the job that needed to be done. But what happens in this is that the believer, because of a lack of understanding of salvation, which we'll, start, we'll get on, and the whole thing of repentance. I mean, this doctrine has gone out the window in many churches, and it's just all become convoluted. And so you just have all of this teaching. It's like you take English, science, and physics, and mingle it all up together and just throw it out there and say, Here, take this, and that's what has happened in the church. And so as the believer is able to focus our mind on who we are in Christ, and revel in those benefits, now I'm out of the way of trying to do the job that the Holy Spirit is consigned to do. He doesn't need me to make myself right. He doesn't need me to show you how righteous I am. He doesn't need me to do any of those things. He just needs me to focus up here, and he'll do the work. He's very capable of doing it. The problem starts, though, and you'll see it, and this is why we started with salvation on page four and five, is that <clears throat> there's an improper understanding of salvation. So you have a lot of people who don't understand what salvation is. They don't know when they're saved, how they're saved. They, they think they can lose their salvation. Just talking to a fellow last week, he thought he could lose his salvation. I said, Well, if you could lose it, you obviously are the author of it. Because if, if God does it, <laughs> you're not losing it. And so, I mean, just think about it. If you think that you can lose your salvation, I mean, how horrible that is. And so let's look at, it's very simple. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Somebody told me once, they say, well, you're one of only a few people that actually believe that 1 Corinthians 15 is the way that you're saved. And I said, well, thank you. I'm glad you said that. Because doesn't it say right here that this is the gospel by which you're saved? Or am I reading it wrong? I mean, it clearly says that, right? Even a little kid could understand it. First Corinthians 15, chapter 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel by which I preach unto you, which also you received wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. Does it not say this is how you're saved? Maybe I'm reading, did I miss something? Well, if this is how you're saved, why is it that on many of the monikers around town where they're telling you how to be saved, you don't see this? Why is it that in many of your tracks, you don't see this? It's really astonishing. Now he's going to say how you're saved. If you keep in memory what I preach unto you unless you've believed in vain. And so there is no object That you're pointing at, you say you believe, and and I would say one of the good things that, one of the things that you would add to that is I believe, but, but, the moment you say but, your belief is going out the window. And now he's going to give three things, verse three: For I delivered unto you, first of all, how also that which I received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was the perfect substitute for our sins and this was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures and that he was buried and so you say well why does it matter and you hear people say oh I believe he died and rose well you know a lot of people believe that Christ died but it was only spiritually proof of the fact that he physically died was that he was placed in a physical tomb That means he was literally buried. And that he was raised again um, on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he gives the proofs of the fact that he was raised. Now you know that anybody at this time could have actually contested this notion that he was raised. Do you know nobody did? It's interesting. Here we are 2,000 years away from the fact and now people are trying to contest it. And I think this is why Paul gives the information that he gives here. Notice what he says here, and that he was uh, and that he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve. And after that, he was seen above, of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain until this present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me as one by not born out of due time. <clears throat> and so here you see all of this. Proof of the fact that he was physically, bodily raised from the dead. If you do not believe that Christ died physically, that he was buried physically, and that he was raised physically from the dead, you are not saved. You are not saved. I was talking with a gentleman last week. I had breakfast with him, and he just thinks the Bible is just metaphorical. It's not really true. Um, And so, he's a very smart guy. He's an engineer. And so, he thinks, you know, it's a living document. Kind of like the Constitution. And so, you have these people. They don't believe that this is really literally what it says. They don't believe it. And so, all I know is that this is what Scripture says you must believe to be saved. And so, and one of the other things that I, I want to point out, and we're not going to go through all of this, but when you get to the gospel, <clears throat> you understand that there's, the word gospel means what? Good news. There's many types of good news. <gasps> you can't say that! Pastor Dave said that at a conference once, and a guy got offended. That he said, that there's many types of good news. The guy got up and walked out. Why? Why? Well, the word gospel means good news. And so you can really see very clearly in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, that there's a good news going to be preached to the uh, those in the tribulation period, right? It's not the good news that you see here in 1 Corinthians 15. Go read it. Revelation chapter 14 is not the same. And so that's not teaching in what they'll say then, oh no, you're just trying to say that people are saved in different ways. No. I'm saying the object of salvation is different from every dispensation. Did you see Abraham presented with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ back in Genesis 15? Now, if you say that, then I'm going to have to check your Bible and see what kind of Bible you're reading. Because you didn't You see that back there. You would have to read it into it. And so you have that, and so that's what I would caution you about And the whole idea. And this is where I think some of the confusion comes from, is that what is the gospel? And so I gave you that information there, and hopefully that's helpful to you. Just let me show you one place where you can really see that it's not the same in every place. Look at Galatians chapter 1. And now if you say that the gospel is good, and this is the gospel for initial salvation here in Galatians 1— then what you're also going to be saying is that you can lose your salvation. Because Paul had told these people about this gospel, and what did he say? They left it. Now, what is this good news he's talking about? It's a good news of how you live by grace. This is what the whole book of Galatians was about. It's not by law, but it's by grace. Then notice in Galatians chapter 1 and verse um, uh, 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ, or really it's the gospel concerning the Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach another gospel unto you, than that which have, we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Now he's talking to these people, and you see that he sees that they're believers. So how could they have left the gospel for initial <laughs> salvation? You see, you can't. So when you come to scripture, look at what is good, what that God, word gospel means, and how it's being used, and look at context. It makes a huge difference. And so we understand that the gospel for initial salvation is Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day. That is what you must believe to be saved today. There is nothing else. There is no other gospel. There is not. Somebody said, well, what about Romans 10, 9? Well, let's look at that context in Romans 10, 9. In Romans 10, 9, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Did you know that they had a faith? They had a faith. What they had to add to their faith was Christ. Just look at context. Context. It's there for a reason. Well, let's look at that. Romans chapter 10. Now, you can just see right here through the context, look at the name that he references, and then look at the pronouns. If language means anything... It means something. (laughs) He's talking to a particular group of people. Notice what he says here. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. Right? I think that he sets the context there, right? Is that they might be saved. Now notice the pronouns as he comes up. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness... Have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Do you know what you don't find here in Romans 10? Death for sins. Christ died for our sins. And if you don't believe that, you are not saved you're not saved. I don't care what other gyrations you do. I don't care if you serve on the worship board. I don't care if you preach. I don't care what it is you're doing in the church. And people have deluded themselves to believe that because they're doing these things that they're saved. If you do not believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and you're adding something else to it, you are unsaved. This is not complicated. It's pretty simple to see. Now, another thing that they do is they complicate the idea of repentance and so now they say you must repent to be saved now we believe that scripture teaches you must repent to be saved the question is how do you repent so what I think has happened is they've dragged 2nd uh, Corinthians seven ten over to initial salvation because in your present in salvation it says that godly sorrow leads to repentance That if you're sad about what you have done, the end result is you will have a change of mind. But that's talking about sin, you see. It's not talking about initial salvation. So now they've got it to where you have to do the sinner's prayer and you have to be sorry for your sins. Well, how sorry? And who measures it? Do we have a sin measurer? Um, Do I have to cry? Should there be crocodile tears? How big do they have to be? And so you've gotten people just running around in circles because the church has done a lot of this. And so what you see, and we'll just, and I give you your chart there and, and um, the booklet, is that there's three things that you can see that will really clear up this issue of repentance. Is that there's repentance used with three gr- different groups of people. In scripture the unsaved Israel and the saved right the unsaved Israel and the saved so let's look at the unsaved so they're unbelieving they get knowledge of the gospel they have a change of mind do you know what the word repentance means it means to have a change of mind one of the classic ways that you see it is right here in 1st Thessalonians 1 9 Paul said that you were unbelievers, you were going in this direction, and you believed the facts of the gospel, and you turned to God from what? Idols. When you have a change of mind, that means you, you turn and you start going in a different direction. Do you know it doesn't talk about an initial salvation that you're crying and slobbering? Do you know it doesn't bring up your sins? Do you know that in John chapter 16 it says that When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the unsaved of one particular sin. Anybody know what that one particular sin is? Um. Unbelief. Unbelief. You know, all of this stuff, it sounds really great when it sounds dramatic, right? And you can go down to the altar and have this dramatic experience, right? And I've seen people have dramatic experiences and they didn't change one lick. One lick. Israel was, uh, we see in scripture that John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance, you see. And so when the Israelites went out, when he was baptizing, he baptized those who had a change of mind. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you because of repentance, you see. They had a change of mind, and John the Baptist baptized them. Now, where it relates to you and I as believers today is uh, comes into 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 7.10. Just turn over there and see that. 2 Corinthians 7.10. For those who are believers, this is where repentance comes in. So Paul is talking about the Corinthians and how uh, he was happy that when they first got his epistle that they were uh, made sorry because of the, the epistle revealed that they had some serious problems, right? And so when they first got the epistle, they, they, they had a change of mind, but then they kind of slid back into their old ways. But when they first got it, he, said that they, he says, verse 9, But I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. And by the way, when you look at repentance, you have to look at what word is being used. So you have a word in also that's translated repentance. It's the word met, um, metamelomai. Do you know that's what used of, re, of uh, Judas? Mm. Now that word says it's not really true repentance. So you have metamelomai, which means that you regret the outcome of something. You ever done something and you really didn't feel bad about it, you just kind of regretted how it came down the pike. If I had it to do it over again, I'd have done the same thing, but I just wish the outcome would have been different. That's what it says of Judas in Matthew 27. He didn't have a change of mind at all. When he saw that the Lord was put to death, he regretted the outcome and the way that it came down. He didn't have a change of mind. And so you, you don't want to confuse that. And so here, he, this is the word metanoia is to have a change of mind. And so, uh, well, one of them, I think, is uh, metamelamai. I think it's in the, um, uh, I think it's in verse, it's earlier, it's, I think it's earlier. But notice in verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance. Or the word for sorrow there is grief, that when you are made grieved, because of recognition that I have sinned, then, you know, one of the things is that you can say, oh, you know, I feel bad about that. You know, or as they say in the um, popular society, oh, my bad. Have you ever seen people say that? My bad. But they never take account of what they did. My bad. It's just a statement you say. Oh, my bad. But they're not sorry about it. They're like, huh, sorry about that. You know, i more almost like regret. But when you have a change of mind, there is a grief over what you did. And as a result of that, you have a change of mind and you go in a different direction. So if you actually have ever repented, you'll, you'll do something different. And so that's as it, as it relates to believers today. And so you have the gospel and then you have this issue of repentance. And, and I, I gave you that chart. And then there's this other chart that I wanted to show you as well as it relates to present in salvation so here you have the believer you have a spiritual believer he becomes carnal lives over here and now you see that he has a change of mind and he see the turn with repentance there's a turn and you go back or you, you go in a different direction you see <clears throat> and so you have that. And so what has happened with salvation and repentance and what is happening in a lot of the way that's being taught is unfortunate because it's, it's really confusing people. And so you throw in the uh, sinner's prayer and all of that, and then you just get all kinds of things going on, and it's just really tragic what is being taught in the church today. It is tragic. And, uh, hey, I don't know God's going to have to deal with those people that are teaching that, but they're teaching things that are not right. And the people that they're hurting as a result of it is really unfortunate. And so now that brings us then to these different kinds of people, as you see on verse 10, that you have in the church that are characterized as Christians. Now, Scott corrected me on this. I think that I had first labeled this to different types of Christians. But I want to say that are called Christians. Because not all of these people that are called Christians are really Christians. And so you have these different kinds of people in the church that are in different places, and so we're going to see that some of them are unsaved, and some of them are in—they're uh, uh, going through different things because they can't overcome their enemies, um, either the world system or the age, or Satan, or their sin nature has gotten the better of them. And these are all outlined in Scripture. So let's get at it <clears throat> on page ten. So Scripture uh, lists nine types of people who are characterized as believers um, in Scripture, and so starting off, number one, this is an unsaved person, it, and it's the natural man. And I must make my Lou Rawls uh, quote here again. Remember his song? Some of you older older people, <laughs> Lou Rawls, just like a natural man. <laughs> Uh, Brittany and Troy haven't. All right, that's right over your head. <laughs> but look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. So Paul understood that in the church that, that there you're gonna find people that are in the church who are unsaved, but to the naked eye, they carry themselves like they're believers, and they're not. So the first thing that I do, I try to ascertain as I engage people, are they saved? I try to get around at some point in time to seeing is there some kind of illumination or whether or not they believe the facts of the gospel because it's going to affect how I deal with them. Because there are certain things, I'm not going to sit up and talk to an unsaved person about spiritual matters and I know that they're not going to understand it. And so uh, you have people that have set up and argued with you and I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay. And you just, you know, it's what it is. And so here you have it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Paul says in verse 14, But the natural man, here's the characteristics of the natural man. He receives not the things from the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness unto him. They're moronic. He thinks it's stupid. And so remember the whole, the whole thing back in the day? Look at the hand. That's what the natural man does to spiritual things. He thinks that this stuff here is stupid. Don't talk to me about that stuff. And notice why he thinks it's stupid. <clears throat> Neither can he know them. See that word, no? It's not that he doesn't know the facts about it. You have a lot of unsaved people that have written books. Go look at some of your Christian bookstores. I pick up some of those books in Christian bookstores and I thinking, oh, there's a lot of unsaved people writing books in here. They know a lot about it. They can tell you the facts about it, but you know what they can't do? That word here is they don't understand it. You can talk about something and not understand it. Did you Do you know that? You can talk to talk and still not understand what you're saying. And this is the natural man. He's an unsaved man. And the word there is actually the word sukkikas. It's emanating things from the soul. He's a soul man. I that, too. that was a song, right? <laughs> he's a soul man. You might, you might not want to sing that song if you're a believer. <laughs> he's a soul man. Now, why does he say he's a soul man? Because a soulish man is governed by his five senses. Can I touch it? Can I taste it? Can I see it? Can I feel it? Can I hear it? If it doesn't fit into that, he rejects it. You see, I was talking to this fellow last week and I was trying to show him that there's natural laws and he would agree with that. And I tried to say, well, you know that there's spiritual laws, too. And that, but he couldn't relate to that. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I think I'm talking to an unsaved man. It's pretty obvious that this guy is not a believer. And so the natural man does not welcome the things pertaining to the Spirit of God, particularly as you start talking about your being resurrected with, together with Christ, seated together with Christ. Man, he looks at that stuff like that's nonsense. That's just nonsense. That's nonsensical stuff. Why are you talking about that? They think that that's stupid, and this is why it's not taught in many of your churches. And so they think that that's a stupid thing. And then you have your carnal Christian. And so you see that in 1 Corinthians 3. Notice several of these occur in 1 first, in first Corinthians. So you have your carnal Christian. Now, he's a saved believer, but he is allowing his sin nature to get the better of him. And so when you become carnal, it's going to limit your ability to take in new truth. It's not that you, don't, you can't remember what you learned, but you will not be illuminated to it And have an understanding about it. You'll stop growing. And this is what Paul. Notice what Paul said to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says. And I brethren. I could not speak unto you as spiritual. But as unto carnal. As unto babes in Christ. See that word again babes. Not using a good context is it? (laughs) It's not good. I have fed you with milk. And not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, and neither are you yet able. There's a lot of churches, if you were to go into those churches, you would have to preach very basic messages. You couldn't talk about things uh, concerning who we are in Christ and some of those things. It would go right over the believer's head. That's probably 50% of the churches out there. too. Yeah, I've had uh, pastors who've gone into situations that have tried to teach that, and the people complain, don't want to hear it. And so this is what happens. And he says, neither are you yet able, for, verse 3, for you are carnal. For whereas, now how do you know that you're carnal? Here's, I can know when I'm carnal. How do you know? Well, he tells you, you can recognize works of the flesh. Envying, strife, divisions. Are you not carnal? So that means I'm emanating things from my sin nature when I'm carnal. I'm a believer, but I'm acting like an unbeliever. And then, you know, there's varying effects, and we'll see as to how God deals with that. Then you have the spiritual believer. And so with the spiritual believer, he's a believer who's the opposite of the soulless person. He's emanating things from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually at ease in this believer, according to John 15, and he's producing fruit the holy spirit is actually working. And so this is not ambiguous either. I can know when I'm spiritual. How do I know when I'm spiritual? Because I'm showing forth works of the fruit from the spirit. Love, joy, peace. You can't imitate those things. I mean, uh, you can't imitate those things. Have you ever tried imitating love? It's hard. You got to work at it. And then you still don't get it done. <laughs> it's hard. And so when the Holy Spirit does it, because you're at ease, it just flows. And so notice in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges, or really he discerns all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Don't get that and say and run away and say, nobody can judge me, I'm a he says that nobody can discern that you're spiritual. You can sit up, and unless you're saying or doing something, nobody knows whether you're spiritual or carnal. Now, when I say something, and maybe I do something, you can say, oh, that guy's carnal. Look at him. That's works of the flesh. Or he's <coughs> spiritual. I can see love or joy or peace. But you can recognize at any point in time whether I'm carnal or spiritual. It's not ambiguous. We play games with our minds because we try to fool ourselves and just say, well, I can't really know. Yeah, you can know. You know. You and I know when we're spiritual, we know when we're carnal. And we know it immediately. And there's not any gray areas in between. <laughs> and so, Uh, And so here he says he discerns, that word judges is he discerns all things. See, a, a person who's emanating and being filled by the spirit has spiritual discernment, you see. He's able to discern, and yet people don't, can't necessarily discern when you're spiritual. And so by the way that the, a lot of um, denominations are doing it, they say, oh, you're spiritual because you can speak in tongues. Oh, you're spiritual because you, don't, you wear long dresses and you don't wear makeup. Oh, you're spiritual because you don't go to the movies on Sunday. No, that's not being spiritual. None of that is being spiritual. None of it. None of it. Zilch. is a sign of Spirituality. Well, you go right over to Galatians 5, which we're going to, and it shows you what spirituality looks like. It's the life of Christ being manifest in this human body. And you'll see it in joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. It's not hard. It's easy to see. Um, And so, there you you have the spiritual person. Then you have the age conformer, Romans chapter (coughs) 2, So Paul is talking to the Roman Church in the first uh, eleven chapters. He talks to them about the problems of this age and some of the issues there, and then he tells them to stop being conformed to this age, which was a legal age. It was the age um, at that time in which it was um, a legal age. Today Today's is, is age is a different age, um, and so notice. They want to conform to this age, and then they want to be able to um, uh, be seen by this age instead of allowing this process to take place and allowing the Holy Spirit to do it, right? They want to produce something that looks a certain way on the outside. How many people are consumed with how people see them? They're consumed with it. I honestly think this is why we have so many Looney Tune people today. I really do, because you've been a lot of these kids, particularly, have been told from the age, very small age up, to think about how uh, your self esteem. Look at yourself. I don't look at myself honestly. I don't, because I know it's horrendous. So I try not to look. <laughs> it's not going to be good. And so people do this in the church, and they, they morph into what people want them to be. Whatever church you go into, you find out what the standard is, and you morph into it. Because you want to be accepted in whatever religious setting you find yourself in. And that's not how it works. That's not how the Holy Spirit does it. And so Paul tells the Romans here in, in Romans chapter 12, and verse one, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your really. See that word reasonable service is your logical priestly service. It is the logical thing that a spiritual believer will do is to offer up his body a living sacrifice. So what does that mean to offer your body a living sacrifice? That means you don't you don't have a dog in the fight. Your dog in the fight is what God wants. And so, whatever you want me to do, God, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. The moment you fail to do that, then you decide that you're going to go on your own will and you're going to fight these battles on your own. And do you know that I've seen with a lot of believers that's really the problem? And they want to call, oh, no, no, I've got this emotional problem. Oh, no, I've got this problem. No, your problem is you are trying to do your will instead of God's will. Let's just be honest. Right. People are not honest with themselves. They're not honest with themselves. They're living in a fairy tale world. And they don't. And today they don't want people to be honest with them. <clears throat> and so here's the, a real problem. You can find yourself in a lot of spiritual problems because you are living in a way in which you're trying to do your thing. And you won't submit yourself to God to be used by God in the way that he wants to use you. And so he says, stop being conformed to this. The word world is actually the word age. And so to is the word conformed, you have conformed. You have two transformation type words here. The first one is conformed is with you have an outward appearance. The focus is on the outward appearance in which you're identifying together with the people that you're with. And those are the people that they're, they're, they're people pleasers. They want to fit in. They want to be accepted by this legal structure in this context as it would be. On the other side of it, he says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. No, here's another uh, uh, change word. And this is the word, we understand it, metamorphosis. And so Christ is indwelling in every believer, but he's not being seen out in every believer. So how is he seen out in every believer? When the believer lives in his renewed mind and accesses the provisions that God has given us by grace, then the Holy Spirit transforms you, and we're going to see this as we get into this glory series in the next few weeks, from the inside out. The Holy Spirit transforms you from the inside out. You're not doing the work. The Holy Spirit's doing the work. All you're doing is allowing him to to do it through you just up. yeah well you have to he wants to do it through the believer just now just imagine as I go out to work in the yard and I got go ready to get ready to put my gloves on and the gloves ah, I got it don't worry about it <laughs> I can handle this what do you need done <laughs> need that brick picked up ah, I can do it you would think this is crazy right Well, do you know that's equivalent to what the believer is doing? When you think that you can do what only the Holy Spirit can do? And that's what's happening. So he says, be transformed, how? By the renewedness of your mind. I don't have to renew my mind, according to Ephesians 4.23. My mind has already been renewed. It's been changed. I just have to live in it. How many believers have lived this life and has never experienced that? And so you have the age conformer. Then you have the Galatianite. We read Galatians 1, 6. We won't go back over there. But the whole, I, the whole um, um, issue in Galatians where the believers were trying to show other people how righteous they were. And that's why he kept saying, you're not justified by law. Any man that tries to be justified by law in the sight of God, no man can be justified in the, in the, in the, by law in the sight of God, but it's evident for the just shall live by what? Faith. <coughs> and so you have this, this Galatianism and age conformity and, and these kind of things, they're just running rapid in the church. Most of what is being perpetuated as doing the work of, and then we got to say it with a deep voice, are God, is <laughs> nothing but human effort. Most of it is just human effort. And I don't know, what, did, what is the degree? I don't know. God's he knows. I do know that in 2 Corinthians 5, one of the things that's going to happen at the BNC judgment is that God's going to discern why we did what we did in these bodies. And he's going to be the one that uh, does it. But here you have these believers, they're so busy. They're focused on what other people think about them and trying to conform to what other people think. The satanically ensnared, and this is interesting. Second, uh, Timothy, this is an interesting fellow here. Yes. You know why? Because this person is a believer. Now, all these are believers that we talked about except for the first one. Now this person here is a believer, but it, this gets even more insidious, and you and I just will find it hard to believe that you can have a believer that is so deluded themselves that they think they're doing God's will and they're actually doing Satan's. Can you imagine that? Notice, I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what Scripture says. Verse 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes and the servant of the Lord must not strive. You see that word in verse 24. This is this stopped me from debating with people. This verse right here. You know what this really says? It is not necessary that the servant of the Lord fight. God doesn't need us to fight for him. He really doesn't. But to be Gentle. Unto all men, apt to teach, patient, verse 25, and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. See, they're doing stuff and it's against their own self, but they don't see it. They don't see it. <laughs> who, who oppose themselves, if God peradventure, here's an uncertainty, maybe he will, maybe he won't in this situation would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And so they had come to a point where they could overcome their sin nature. And now probably they've gotten involved with their sin nature and Satan's manipulating them. And he's taking full advantage of them. And how do I know that? Well, let's read on verse 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who have taken who uh, are taken captive by him at his will. Isn't that crazy? You can have people in the church who are actually being manipulated by Satan to do what he wants them to do, and they think that they're doing what God wants them to do. And they probably slap God's name on it. And it's just—it's really interesting to see, and you can see believers, and I've seen this happen with believers in the church, and you can see a lot of satanic involvement with them. Uh, and and it's it's really interesting to see. So they're a believer. There's a chance that God will intervene. Uh, maybe not. Then you have the world lover, and so the world lover. First John two fifteen. He's loving the world. And so the world is here, and we'll see it when we get to the world system. We're supposed to use the world system but not abuse it. So this person is actually taking the agape love that he should be having toward believers, and he's directing it toward the world. Um, I was talking to a fellow one time, and um, he had the gift of pastor teacher, and he didn't want to use that gift, and uh, he was in business. And he kept telling me, well, I'm waiting for my ship to come in. And I told him, that ship, when it comes in, is probably going to look more like the Titanic than the love boat. <laughs> 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 so, I mean, he's waiting for his ship to come in. He wasn't even thinking about using his spiritual gift with the saints. His focus was on making money. And so notice in verse 15, love not the world. Already you could say stop loving the world because that's exactly, this is what they were doing. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. He's not saying that you are unsaved because you can't have this kind of love if you are unsaved. But what he's saying is that you cannot love the father and love other believers at the same time, love the world at the same time. You're going to either love one or you're going to love the other. It's going to be hard to have divided attention. Right. Right. Again, another song from the seventies. Trying to love too ain't easy to do. I know you were thinking about that, Dave. I, I saw you. <laughs> and so you have that. For all that it is in the world, the lust of the flesh, <clears throat> the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not out from the Father. See, Satan put the things here in the world that are in the world. Do you know that? Satan is the one that put all of this stuff in the world that's in the world. You know, people think that God put it here, but we can we'll show you that God didn't put this stuff here. Satan put it here. And the thing that you will see <clears throat> is that the thing that Satan tries to do is distract our attention away from loving the brethren and accomplishing God's will to accomplishing our own. And so you have a guy who is loving the world. And so, and you'll see that that'll happen at the expense of loving the brethren. Then you have the age lover. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. Now, this person... Now, I think here, this age here, I think, is the present evil age. And so, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells us that this age has several things to it that are very attractive. It has wisdom. It has debaters, right? Uh... And it has uh, where's the scribe? Where is the, um, well, let me go over there. My memory is not serving me well, and I don't want to butcher it up. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 20. Oh, debate, uh, disputers. That's what I missed. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer? Say that word disputer. It's the debaters of this age. Of this age. If you talk to unsaved people, and I saw it at work. People at work, I notice they want to mix it up. They like to debate. I told you when I went back to my, finish my degree at OU and we were in this, um, they asked us who we were at the beginning and I told them I was a pastor and whatnot. and I sat through this, all this evolutionary stuff and one of the guys came to me at break one, one day and he said, ah, didn't you say you were a pastor? I said, yeah. He said, well, why didn't you say anything in there? I said, what, what is there to say? He said, well, I'd like to see you guys mix it up. <laughs> so, what is this? Uh, the Roman Colosseum? <laughs> your cheap entertainment? No, I'm not going to sit up and deba- debate with this guy over this. Let him have his knowledge now. And so they, people want to be able to debate. It is a characteristic of this age. Look at all your talk shows today in America. They talk about a lot of things and they say nothing. Nothing. They just like the art of debating. And so, what I think happened here is that uh, Demas had gotten involved in this. And Paul's in prison. And when he should have been with Paul, what was he doing? He had left Paul on account of this age. And some people believe that he probably went to Thessalonica um, because there was this issue of debating over there. But that's just a guess. We don't know. But if we do know this. Verse 10. He says, verse 9, do thy, do thy diligence to come to me shortly. For demons has forsaken me. That word forsaken is to abandon somebody when they need you the most. You leave them hanging is what we would say. When they need you the most, you're not around. And he says, Demas had forsaken me, having loved this present age. Now, this doesn't say that Demas is unsaved. It didn't say that Demas forsook God. He says Demas forsook Paul. I believe Demas was a believer. But you and and I, as believers, we can get caught up in the age and trying to use the, the mechanisms of the age to accomplish the things of the age. And I think that's what happened with demons there. And the last thing is the maturing believer. And we'll see this. And so the maturing believer is an abiding believer. Christ is at ease in the believer. And the believer feels at ease in Christ. And he's fellowshipping with other believers. And he's growing. And we'll see that. And so we have nine different types of people that are characterized as believers in the church. Now, what this does is you can now see... When and if I fall into these categories, I can psychoanalyze myself and know what's going on. That I can fall into these categories or I can see other believers that are in those categories and know how to help them or how to relate to them. And so you you will see a lot of believers in church and, and many churches you'll fall into and then you'll say, hey, I just don't understand. Why is that guy doing that? Why is he acting that way? What is the reason for it? And I think it's all covered in these nine types of people who call themselves Christians. One of them is not. He's a wolf in sheep clothing, and it's the natural man.